Looking Back, Moving Forward. Welcome to our series on Deuteronomy. Today we will be speaking on Deuteronomy 26, Reaching into Our Pockets and Hearts. We'll be asking the question, why would we ever keep him out of part of our lives? This is a production of Biblical Foundations for Freedom, given at Oakland International Fellowship in Pittsburgh by Reverend Paul Bucknell. Further resources can be found on the web, www.foundationsforfreedom.net. It's just so wonderful to come before the Lord. Appreciate the hymns we could just sing about the cross. Today we're continuing on in the series through Deuteronomy, looking back, moving forward. Today our topic is Deuteronomy 26, reaching into our pockets and our hearts. Reaching into our pockets and our hearts. Deuteronomy, as we've been going through it, there's four major sections. And Deuteronomy 26 is the last of this largest, largest section, refocusing on God's way. We've been going over a number of the laws that have God has revealed to his people and trying to get them to ca- catch a picture of the way that they need to live their lives if they're going to be blessed. God was meticulously identifying this law, and you should do this, and you should do this. Uh, and you wonder, wow, I'm so glad I don't belong part of that Old Testament and that Old Covenant. But I do want you to realize that behind this covenant was something that was essentially and wonderful and great and beautiful. There was a calling for a people to come into his presence. There was a calling for the people to be able to be the most blessed people in the whole world. And he was showing them the way. For most of us, we are just so comfortable the way we are. And the people you talk to that have jobs would say, yeah, things are fine. I don't need God. But even in our own lives, because sometimes our resources in this kind of society, we are quite comfortable, okay, as far as we look at things. In fact, in our lives, it seems like God is kind of kept out. Our hearts are like a safe. Inside there is our heart, our money, the things we like. And we think that if God is over there and I'm right here, that that is the best life possible. And so for most of the Christian life, we are trying to keep that safe closed most of the way, if not all the way, out of God's reach. But God himself has said that he is the one who likes to come and reach into our hearts. But, you know, for us, he's trying to take his hand and and just go in and take what is precious, those things that we love so much. He is trying to reach into our pockets and trying to take out what's precious and what we count on. He's trying to reach in every area of our life. Why? So that he can exchange it with something that's better. A lot of us have a lot of questions. And I think the most sinister temptation, the most sinister doubt that the evil one could plant in our lives is that God is not essentially good. And this doubt lies behind our hearts, the veneer of our Christian lives, and we think the best is when we hold back from God. God is saying, the best is when you give up everything and allow him to give you the very best. Now, as we move on to this third section in Deuteronomy 26, what we'll find here is a series of points that are God is trying to draw again out our hearts. Now, for the people of Israel, they were laws, they were commands, that if you would follow those things, you would actually step further into the blessing of God. If you held back, then you would be cut off from those blessings. God is essentially good, and he wants to bring the very best into our lives, and if it's laws that are needed, then he will give us laws. But all the time, he wants you to know you can fully trust him. Now, in Deuteronomy 26, three key themes. Verses 1 to 11, being thankful shapes our affection for God. Verses 12 to 15, being kind helps others in need. Being committed determines the welfare of our lives. Verses 16 to 19. Before we go on, let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you're the almighty God working wonderful things into our life. When we have just sung about the cross, when we have just thought about the cross, we have thought about your very best intention for our lives. For there is nothing that you withheld to give us the very best. And Lord, we want to thank you so much. But even if you could during this time, 
to strip away those sinister doubts that have been implanted in our hearts, that somehow we think in our lives, in our physical condition, in our job condition, in our family condition, that you have, have withheld your best from us, Lord. That is a total lie, Lord, for you have given us your very best. And now, Lord, open our hearts, open our lives, open our pockets up to you, that you could fully reach in and take and give whatever you please. Thank you for your love and your blessings. In Christ's name, amen. So let's go on and look at what it is to be thankful. This thankfulness that he wants to create in our hearts will shape our affection for him. If you look carefully, the law itself will shape, will increase the affection that God's people have for him. Now, these are Old Testament laws. These are not things that we have to do, but they are remembrances for us for how we are to respond to him. So let's read this verse together, please. Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it. So notice the first thing that he's talking about here. There will be a time when they go into the land God is giving them as an inheritance. They're going to go in there. They're going to possess it. They're going to live in it. They are, right now, the Israelite community, on the east side of the Jordan River. And when he talks about entering the land, they're talking about crossing the Jordan River, going westward, and going into a land that's filled with all sorts of enemies. If we go back to the book of Numbers, we will remember that was clearly a, a land full of big enemies, so big, so scary, that the spies were unwilling to go in. They could not believe that God would ever give them that land. Now here they are at another Kadesh Barnea scene. They're at the point where they will trust God. But God never had any qualms whether the enemy was too big. He never worried whether the Israelite army was strong enough, whether they had enough weapons, they had enough food. This was all to the side. It was not the point. He says, when you go in, and when I give you this land, I want you to do something. Our greatest enemy is never what we see with our eyes. The greatest enemy always goes back to our trust in God. Now what he did, and this is the first point, he is shaping a sense of context for thankfulness in their hearts. He has given them a promise, telling them all the things he's going to give them. It's a gift to them. Now this is what they're going to do. Let's read on. That you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the land, which you shall bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you. And you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. I will remind you, this word Lord is not really Lord. This word Lord really is Yahweh. It's a personal name for God. And the Bible is not well translated this. It's Jehovah your God. Yahweh is his name that he revealed. It's he who gave this to you. It's not any generic type God, okay, that you just created. It's him. He's identifying himself. He's identifying himself as a beneficiary, the one who gives uh, all these good things to, to our lives. And so what we find here is when they go in, what you should do is take some of the first of all the produce of the land. That means when they go into the land, the manna is going to stop, okay, the manna that was coming from the heavens for 40 years. Now, that might seem a great blessing, but I, I remember sometimes, my children, this is the same breakfast we're eating two days in a row. But imagine eating manna for 40 years in a row. And uh, they were about to go into a land and find produce. You know, not you'd find in a desert land, but, you know, fruits, grapes. I mean, everything would be like, wow. It's like you just walked into a buffet of sorts. But you've never been in one before, you know, and it makes it all the more special. And for them, you have meat, you have vegetables, you have fruits, you have spices, all sorts of things. And they could concoct their own wonderful meals. You know, but God's bringing it there, and he wants them to take the first produce of the land and bring it to them. Now notice here, it's the first, but what were they going to do? They're going to go to the priest with the first fruit offering. They were to make a declaration. This day, the Lord my God, I've entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers. In other words, when you're there, you've got to go up before the priest and say, God has done it. Okay? We'll, we'll review that in a second. I'm just trying to go through some of the steps right now. The priest will take the offering, the basket, and set it before the altar. These are three simple steps. Okay? You take your offering, the basket, 
You give it to the, you declare, make your declaration, you give the basket to the priest, and he sets it down. Now, I just want to kind of go through what it means at this point a little bit. First of all, this offering was not a big one. It was just a basket full of things. So it was a token. But it was a token enough that you had to get something, and you had to go somewhere, and you had to say something. It was enough to make it a significant event in their life that something had happened. And so when they look back, they'll say, yes, I remember that time. We actually went to the priest. You know, God promised it. But after fighting all those enemies, finally God has done it. And he wanted to bring to their memories that God had done much. Bringing it before the priests, they could have done it at home. Thank you, God, for what you've done. And they probably had. But they also, bringing it before the priests, highlighted two things. One, God's holiness. You can't just casually come before God. Not in the Old Testament. No, you couldn't. We take that for granted in the New Covenant because we come simply in Jesus' name. But in the Old Testament, you have to go before the priest. That was God's holiness. You just can't walk up to him. And the priest was important, just like Jesus Christ is our priest who intercedes before the Lord on our behalf. It's still important, but sometimes it's disguised in the person of Jesus. But in the Old Testament, they had to walk a ways before they got there. But the point of it was just to say, yeah, you did it. You did it. You're great. You're wonderful. I declare it. And in their minds, they are establishing what's true. Now, it's interesting because if you look at any archaeology uh, research, most of it, most of the presumption there is that Israel never actually went into the land. Now, if that's their foundational thoughts before they start studying and researching, you can see how biased their conclusions will be. Now, you're saying, what, what do you mean? Well, what I'm saying is most of the archaeologists don't believe that the Bible's true. Don't believe Israel ever went into the land. And it's like God knew that this was going to happen, and he just wanted to put it down very clearly. This really happened. So like some, some people say, you know, World War II and the Nazis, all that never happened. You know, just make believe it never happened. Never happened, right? Never happened. You believe it yet? No? Oh, it never happened, right? Never happened, no. And you never, they never entered the land, right? No. Well, they did. No, they didn't, right? It's, they never entered the land. You know, it's this kind of hypnotizing of the media that's trying to reshape what really happened. But God setting it down in time, a God of history, a God of truth, that says this is what happened, and it's all about my faithfulness, because if you strip away the point whether I brought you into the land or not, you will leave me. You will forget my faithfulness. You will not think that I'm awesome and wonderful. You will not devote your heart fully to me because you have doubts, you have questions, and it just fades in with my sons, my grandchildren, and you forget it. He wanted to get the story right. There's so much historical revisioning going on that it's not concerned about truth, it's only concerned about people's biases. God is concerned about the truth, and that's why he doesn't, is not worried about telling you how the world began, how he made it, how it developed, the first generations, how sin came into the world. It's all history. And he's quite, quite willing to match it up with any book that you might pick up that denies it, like the many ones that founded with evolution, that deny that sin ever came into the world, that deny that man is distinct from animal. Let's go on and see exactly what they said. Well, let's read it together, because it's a really powerful saying here. Please. And you shall go to the priest, who is in office at that time, and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and opposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice. 
and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I brought the first of the produce of the ground which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God, and worship before the Lord your God. And you, and the Levite, and the alien who is among you, shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. See how powerful this is? I just want to go through some of the points that are stated here in this declaration, this historical event of what has happened. It's much like when we put up a monument and establish these things. First of all, the father was a wandering Aramean, speaking about Jacob coming from the land of Assyria there where he got his wife. God led them. God led them and promised a land. They were few in number. Do you remember how many went down to Egypt? Seventy people. I mean, that's how many here. Only seventy. I mean, what are you talking about? All these great promises to Jacob and his twelve sons, only seventy. You're going to a foreign land. But notice they came out as a great mighty and populous nation. They were oppressed by the Egyptians. They were crying out, God, wait, how long did it take them? Well, too long, 400 years, they, until they finally cried out to God, and God said, oh, you finally want my help, do you? He says, okay, I'll help you now. And he heard their cry. But you see how personal it is? He's just going to answer those, oh, I'll be good to you. He's waiting to create those opportunities where you can come personally before him, or as a church body, come before him, or as a cell group, you come before him. Answer him, he says, oh, yes, you're asking me something. What did you say? Sure. He's not a generic God. He's a personal God. And he again and again emphasizes, Yahweh, I'm Yahweh. I'm your God who made you. Of course, he's the only true God. But he's trying to identify it as one who really meets with individuals and creates those relationships. And he wonderfully delivered them from Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Mighty, great, terrible signs, signs and wonders. It's awesome. He did everything. He broke out all the fireworks, all you know, whatever it took to free them in the most spectacular exit from the land they were ensnared in. And he gave them a new home flowing with what they call milk and honey. Everything they needed to grow strong people, a happy people. And what is God trying to again do here? Remind them of his utter faithfulness. That they didn't deserve it, but this is what he did for them. You see how he's reaching into their heart? Turn how to reach in and say, I'm yours. You know, won't you give me your whole heart? At the end, it's interesting that he would want them to be joyful with the Levites, with the aliens in their nation, and, and everyone just be happy proclaiming what God has done. So let me just kind of summarize here the steps here. You know, my father was a wandering man. So there's that declaration. There was taking that offering and setting it down before the Lord God. It's just a basket. So they would worship the Lord. This word worship means to bow down, literally just fall prostrate on the ground before God. And they would rejoice. I mean, it says it right there. Rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. And to be a happy people. This is the way it is. We can't be a happy people unless we remember what God has done. And this is the same why we have a Holy Communion where we regularly would join in and remember what he has done for us. It's a time when we have a baptism where we again remind all ourselves, yes, this is how he did it. He died for us. We believe. We die to ourselves, and we're alive together in his presence. It's, a, it's an event. It's something we remember. So let me just summarize this first point from verses 1 through 11, Deuteronomy 26. First of all, it's that sharpened perspective. Without rightly thinking of the events of the world, and what he's done for us, we cannot properly live godly lives. It is important to keep the large perspective of what's going on. Otherwise, he would say, who are you? I'm a student. 
No, no, no. The first thing. Who are you? I'm a wife. No, no, no. You are, of course, but no. Who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a child. I belong to this family. No, no, no. Well, you are, but that's not, not the most important thing. Who you are is God's child in this great world. And in that great world, of course, he's given you this assignment, this, this, and you're doing this. But that is just temporary. That's not your main focus. That's why some of you got big tests coming up, but you come and worship together. There's a greater context, a greater God is here. He's called me to remember all the great things going on. God's faithfulness. A strong belief in God's faithfulness is necessary for steady, growing spiritual life. If you doubt his faithfulness or you doubt his goodness, what's going to happen? You will not grow. In fact, Satan is already beginning to deceive you. You are already given into his lies. It will cut down on your motivation. It will take away from your trust that he can do wonderful things or that he would want to do wonderful things in your life. Step by step, Satan would take you down. God, step by step, notice, through the law here, builds up his people. Lastly, we say it's their dependence on God. If we understand all goodness comes from God, then we will continually seek his face. I wonder in your own life, would you say there is that cultivation of thankfulness within your heart? Now, I know we just went through the Thanksgiving time, but was it still on the outward? Or did it somehow in your heart, as we were singing worship songs earlier, was there a cultivating of thankfulness as history, as the truth of the cross was brought before your eyes? If there isn't, I will challenge you to repent and to break through some of those stereotypes about God or Christianity or your own life that have kept you, kept God, in a sense, out of the safe of your heart. Because unless these truths enter in, your door will not swing wide open and let him reach in and take everything where you gain everything. Let's go on. We talked about being thankful. Now we're talking about being kind. Being kind helps others in need. And this is, again, just three sections, three sets of laws, you might say, that God is asking for the Israelites to do. In verse 12, we see that he's, again, beginning the second section. Together, can we read this? When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Here we're talking about a, a tithe, what they call a triennial tithe, a tithe that's paid on the third year. There is some question about what this triennial tithe is. It is interesting, and I don't quite understand this one either, but you would think if God was writing about the tithe, he would write about all of them together and kind of list them out very clearly. He doesn't do that. In Deuteronomy 14 and 12, he talks about it in Book of Numbers, Book of Leviticus. He talks about this tithe and that tithe, and so we're trying to get it all together. I'll talk a little bit more about it, but it, it's kind of hard. But you notice here, it's talking about on the third year, a special tithe is going to, that is needed to be paid. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. But notice the purpose here, that when you give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. God is clearly concerned about the poor, those who are not able to take care of themselves. In our age, I suppose we cannot fully appreciate this because we're in a totally non-agricultural setting here. We live in an urban setting where we talk about having jobs or welfare and uh, unemployment. And back then, there's no unemployment. If the crop is bad, you just... If the crop is little, you have less. Everybody around you has less. If your husband dies, well, there's no one to plow the ground. You can't plow the fields. We have to sell it. If something... You break a leg. Well, the seed's not planted. There's no growth that year. There's mom dies. Well, who's going to watch the children? There's all these type of things here that God was creating a, a situation in which 
even in these difficult situations, that God would still be caring for the poor. We spoke about this earlier when we talk about how to deal with crime, how to deal with juvenile delinquents, how to deal with uh, situations like that. I, it needs to be clear here that God is concerned, and God has a solution. Now, God is, again, this is the context of the Israelite community, and let's understand that. But in the end, and we need to make it our major goal, that in our community, and the strangers around us, that we have a responsibility to care, too. A third thing we'll talk about is the confession of the giver. The confession of the giver. So let's go on and discuss a little bit more what this tithe is all about. There are three tithes that are spoken of. There's, first of all, the Levitical tithe. This is the tithe that was given to the Levites. A tithe, by the way, means 10%. And it'd be probably better if they just said 10% in the Bible rather than a tithe in some versions because we, it's only used in this context. But a tithe really means 10%. So if I earned $5,000 in one month, how much would I give to the Levites? $500. There's no question, right? 10%. We're pretty good at math, I can see. Uh, some people are good at math, but they would only give 300. Some people are great at math, and they carefully calculated, I will give 100. And they will pride themselves that they have fulfilled command. It wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't. 10% goes. The reason is, God designed it that the Levites could spend their time focused on his service. So God did not give them a, a big land territory. They instead gave them a number of cities that were throughout the land. And this land, these cities only had a little bit of land. Not enough for grazing or for agriculture. They depended on everyone else. Now, God made it this way. Now, if you can understand, what would happen if the people of God were not faithful? What would happen to the Levites? They would starve. Yeah, they were dependent on... Okay, you see what would happen? And so God made it this way, though. In one sense, it made, helped the Levites, motivated them to be faithful priests. So they would say their prayers. They would tell people about God's word. If they had it too comfortable, then perhaps they would go corrupt, and, and the people would go corrupt. It's kind of a security system, perhaps. But the point is, they were dependent on them, and it motivated them to be faithful, but it also gave them the opportunity to spend more time in God's presence and in helping people. The festival tithe was a little bit different. So the festival tithe was an, another 10% that they were to use in Jerusalem during feast. This is so interesting. I think it's in Deuteronomy 14, it talks about this. Imagine saving 10% of your income so that every year you could go three times on vacation and spend it having a great time in God's presence and, and sharing it with other people. This is what was supposed to happen in Jerusalem. So every year you would save 10% and three times a year go down to Jerusalem. You could just, you're supposed to spend it there. You could buy anything you wanted, you know, have a nice feast. You could go to that, over that, that restaurant there. You could get a good fatted lamb or whatever. Uh, it, it was just spend it. And you enjoy it. And give some to the priests, give some to the, you know, immigrants. Just everyone have a great ball. That was 10%. I'm still trying to think, how do you apply that into our context? But uh, because Jerusalem was in one place, not where God's throne was, he wanted it. When you go there, you're going to be happy. You're starting to look forward to going there. It would be like a feast. It would be wonderful. And, of course, this is what God wants. Every time we come to his presence, there's something wonderful. And he created these laws not to make it sad-faced. Oh, I have to save time for that but to make sure that you get the best of life. For so, you know, sometimes you're so busy getting, trying to get that promotion, you forget God. You're trying to get those grades, you forget God. I'm trying to have some fun, you forget God. I'm trying to get that spouse, you forget God. No, 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 no. Every year, you save up and you spend your time, your resources, and having a great time in God's presence. God, again, trying to share of his goodness. The Sabbath, all these laws were there to create Downtimes in God's presence. The triennial tithe, and this is what we were talking about here in Deuteronomy 26, you give to the Levites, the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows. It is not quite clear whether every third year this triennial tithe is the same as a festival tithe or it's a separate tithe. 
it's not quite clear. And that's why I have a dotted line between there. And some think it's the same thing. But on the third year, you do this special task with it and just give it to the everybody rather than on your own. So how do you apply this in your own mind? I, I'm, I'm trying to think. The Levitical tithe is pretty clear. Okay, You, you support full-time workers. Uh, you have pastors. You have... And you, we give to the church a, a tithe, 10%, and God uses it to take care of pastors who pray for us and help us to get closer to God, to teach us his word, and there's that sense of uh, dependence on God, dependence on, from them, their point on, on what you would give them. Uh, I'm glad I'm not pastoring here right now. It's easier to preach on this. And... Uh, the, the festival tithe, as I think, I think we just need to go on a vacation with the Lord. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. In one sense, we have a church building here. Maybe you can think it supports our building so that we can have times together in our facilities and things like this. Maybe. Don't be adverse. I only give to spiritual things. Well, God didn't think of it that way. Spiritual things is having a great time in his presence. And he really did create it that way. And some of it even said, you know, buy have drinks, um, wine even, you know. Well, I, you know, I'm not too used to that myself. But I, I'm just trying to say, you might exclude that from your own spiritual life, but God made that part of the provision for them. But it, there was a sense of spending time with God. A time every, every year where you would just, just be refreshed in his presence. And I don't know how you would translate that in your own life except slow down every once in a while. Don't be so busy that you would forget God. God has so much more for our lives. And he just wants us to enjoy his presence. So maybe it has to do with the building fund. Maybe it has to do with just a vacation and, and or a conference maybe that you'd go to. I don't know. But don't be afraid of spending money that way. You don't always have to save, save, save. Spend as you go a little bit. There's still 80%. 80%, you say, well, I don't know how to do that. Already, 80%, and the government takes 40%, and what am I going to have left here? Well, first of all, live more simply. Don't buy a big house at first. You want your dream house, and you're only 24 years old or 30 years old. Why? No, no, no. Don't go into debt like that. Free yourself so you can enjoy life step by step. Don't jump. Like, I mean, we have so much financial situations. Reminders. This is not the way you should live. Don't jump into that new car. Don't jump into that new big fancy house. Go slow, step by step. It's okay. Because our goals are centered around what God has for us, trying to preserve some of our finances so that we can carefully give to him. And you'll see this more as we go on and see the declaration. They had to make another declaration about how they use their tithe. I don't know if um, pastor is going to ask you. Now, you have to every year come up and tell me, this year you have given your tithe. Say it. I pledge to pastor, and uh, I have given all my... I don't know. The triennial tithe, though, is there has to be a place in your giving where you give to the poor. For me, it's kind of hard. Unless I said in my mind, I'm going to give a certain portion, then I will give this to the people out there it doesn't seem to just naturally get out there. I have to purposely set in my mind, I have this amount, I want to give that amount. And it, it might be might be 10%, it might be 5 or whatever it is. This is how God was asking them. But the point is, we have to free up our lives, live simply enough so that we have enough to give. I know the government is trying to take this obligation from us. We cannot. Uh, the government has not shown itself very faithful in helping the people that you know that are really poor near you. And I know a person, they get food stamps and, you know, they buy it on all these different things. They trade them, they buy drugs, they try to trade it, get cigarettes. It just doesn't work all the way that they should. Uh, we have to get through, get to a deeper level, a personal level, where they can begin to understand it's God who gives. And while you're giving individually, it's not because of compulsion. It's because you care for the poor. And that's what God wants them to know, that God, the mighty creator, cares for the poor and only can know it when someone personally gives because he wants to give and sees that need. So whether it's overseas, and there's so many needs there, and a little bit can help so much. So give while you can give. Next year, you might not have any employment. You can't give. But oh, 
if you were faithful in giving what you could now. So no matter what happens in the future, you won't be ashamed before God. Three tithes, Levitical tithe, festival tithe, triennial tithe. But they talk about giving and sharing, having that type of interdependence, working together so that everybody is satisfied, everybody will bless God, rather than some people going so hungry. This seven-year tithe cycle, let me just explain. Every three years they were to give. And the idea is that every three years you will see the crops come around and maybe one year is really low and you can't give that much, you need to use it for seed. But in three years, it seems like that what happens is you're able to look at the three years and give the full amount that you're to give. And you do this two times, and then the seventh year would be the Sabbath year. Nobody would plant any crops. There wouldn't be anything to give. So it's these two, three years within the seven-year cycle that this uh, triennial tithe happens. Let's read this portion. This is what they were going to say before the priest. And uh, again, it's very interesting if you had to say this. Just think about that as we read it together. And you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from my house and also have given it to the Levite and the alien and the orphan and the widow, according to all thy commandments which thou hast commanded me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of thy commandments. I have not eaten of it while mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. I have listened to the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that thou hast commanded me. Look down from thy holy habitation, from heaven, and bless thy people Israel. And the ground which thou hast given us, a land flowing with milk and honey, as thou didst swear to thy fathers. Notice, I have pledged that I have given all that I'm supposed to do. Can you say that? Oh, it's so freeing when you can do that. Now, why wouldn't you give what God puts on your heart to give? It's because you don't believe him. You see this computer right here? It's different from my other one. But it's part of God's blessing in my life because I give as he gives. I use my personal computer in my ministry. I bring it to all these dusty places where grime and everything gets into it. That's okay. I contribute my personal to my ministry. But God saw it was falling apart, so he gives me a replacement for it. I could even upgrade $200 to a new model from a three-year-old model. The other one I just had, they gave me for one month, wasn't working, which was a, just a simple replacement for it. It couldn't even run the PowerPoint on it because of memory. When I look back in all the ways that God provides, he's so faithful. When you give to him, he will create special ways of bringing blessings in your life that you never even could think about. And you're holding back stingy, like trying to hold on to things, your pockets. God, don't put your hands in my pocket. Or you say, okay, my change pocket. Yeah, you can take that, but not my wallet. And we hold back. And the reason we hold back is because we don't believe God. And God is saying, I dare you. You believe me. You start giving. And in your heart, you begin to have like a, a river that flows abounding. You see, the laws were to set you free. The laws were there to bring you closer to what the fullness of what God wanted for your life. Now, it, it doesn't fully work because this is conformity on the outside. In the new covenant, we have it in the inside. And we have the sense that I've given you everything through Jesus. Won't you give? And we say, yes, I'll give. But do you doubt that God would bless you if you gave like he wants you to give? If in the old covenant they had to give 20% or 25 or even 30% of their salary income, what about in the new covenant? Are our hearts so close to his gift to us that we can't give to others? Why? What are we saving up for? It's much better to celebrate, to give. So let's look at this confession. I've properly given 10% of my income and gifts and given it to the proper people, the poor, the alien, the immigrant. Or I've given it to the support. Have you? Have you indeed is the question. I've not inappropriately handled your resources. Uh, notice in the text that we just read, it talks about I haven't given it while mourning, given it to the dead, lived in a land where they just regularly sacrificed to the dead. They would give their wealth, they would make pretend cars, and they would burn paper money. They were pretty clever, I guess. They weren't burning the real thing. But uh, they would burn a paper house to the dead. But 
these things were not because of culture influence. What God wants us to give to the living, give to the real people that have needs. Give to the people that can't give back to you. That's the ones. It's that sense of that I need your blessing. He says, bless thy people Israel and the ground which thou hast given us. So the question here at the end, do you believe that God's blessing is better than the money that you would store up by holding back? I've come to conclude, the more I give, the more God blesses. And that's what Jesus said. The more blessed is the giver than the ones who receive. And he's just waiting for all of us. Open our pockets more. Take out your wallets. Open up your bank accounts and let God be able to write checks from your account. What do you want to sign off today, Lord? It's so special. But it's the craving, it's the desire. Bless your people. Bless us, Lord. I give because your blessing, I believe your blessing to us is greater. So let's just summarize these. Full-time workers, it's good. We support missionaries, we support pastors, and they gain our support. So they're working in China, they're working there in uh, uh, Mongolia. Good, good, support those missionaries. There's an orphanage, good, you support them. There's joy in serving. They share and they give others as one needs in the Lord's presence. The whole sense of koinonia was a feast that everyone joins in in God's presence. That's the essence of this second tithe as I see it in Romans 12, 13. There's this gift of uh, hospitality. You open up. You pay for the meal. Come on over. I want you all to be blessed. And we give thanks to God. There, there's that sense of goodness. And uh, there are a lot of those feasts going on recently. It's just wonderful. And we just open up and share with the needy. Uh, there's refugees. There's immigrants. There's poor. There's widows. There's orphans. There's people that are, are, are missing it. And there's many, many overseas. Please don't forget that. Right now, we have an opportunity to give. Each time I go overseas, I'm so humbled at uh, what the people don't have. And even though for us, this increase in food prices doesn't really matter too much, does it? We might complain, but for them, it means they go without. It means they go without. Lastly, let's look at these verses together from Deuteronomy 26, 16 to 19. Let's read this, please. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his ordinances, and listen to his voice. And the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments, and that he shall set you high above all nations, which he has made for praise, for fame, for honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. Wow, so wonderful. Now notice, you have today declared the Lord to be your God by saying that you will do these commandments. So if he said, all right, if you paid your tithe up on the stage, you are my people. Could you go up on the stage? Why not? Are you his people? It's not that you're not saved. Okay, let me just summarize this. You're not saved through your work and giving. Not at all. You're saved through Christ. But what makes you sure that Christ lives in you if you can't give to the poor? If you can't give to the church needs? What makes you so sure? And that's the way with all these rules. They don't get you to heaven, but they reflect where the Christ is in you. This is the difference. And when you look at the early part of the book of Acts, you will see a community that Christ is living in. And you'll see it in the very means that they were giving to this people and this people and this people and sharing their houses and opening them and even selling their houses so they could give. So there's three key words I want here to focus on. Being careful, being committed, and being consecrated. Let's look at them as we close. First of all, be careful to obey with all your heart and soul. In other words, you can give 90%, but it's not enough. All your heart and soul. If you're careful to obey, careful in this, then you will obey. If you do not give as you should, it's still not called obedience. 90% giving is not obedience, is it? No. That's why it says all your soul. Don't let any compromise in your heart. Committed to long-lasting. In other words, now by the way, this is 
the covenant that God is presenting the Israelites before they cross over the Jordan. These three verses here, 16, 17, 18, 19, four verses, excuse me, are actually summarizing this whole section of Deuteronomy. And if you would, the book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the whole Pentateuch. Now, in one sense, he's summarizing this whole book. Um, but he's saying, at least here for the Israelites crossing over the Jordan, this whole covenant that I am restating to you, not just the thing about giving, you know, your pockets and things, or your finances. But what he's saying here, when you keep all these commandments, you make this part of your life, a commitment in your life, this is the way I'm going to live, then it will be shaped and become a culture for you, and it will begin to influence your children and your children's children. It's the only way when it becomes commitment to you. In other words, you do it even when, God, I can't do this. You help me. Remember, a sister wanted to go on short-term missions and she didn't have the money. But she believed God wanted her to go. And so she committed to going, and God provided by opening up a conference that opened at the same time that they took care of the plane fare. You know, it, it, these things happen all the time for the people who step out to trust God. He has a multitude of ways of answering and taking care of our needs. I, I want to just focus on that. When we are consecrated, what we find is a great blessing. Now, I don't notice if you saw this when we read it, but it is powerful. He will make you his people. He will make you his treasured possession. No one else pays attention. You're just a number, right? Not to God. You're his treasured possession that he goes to every day and says, you're special. I know what you're doing, and I love it, and I love you. He sets you high above all nations as a people. He'll do that with our lives. This is not the prosperity gospel. The ways he does it is different. But you'll see if you dare. He will make you a place where praise, fame, and honor go. He'll make you a consecrated people to the Lord. You see, this is also stated in the New Testament for us. He's stating this true about us as God's people. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we step back and look that God has made us those special people, he has given us his promises, his own person, and said, when you come close to me, Yes, I might reach into your heart and I might reach into your pocket. But what I give you back would be more than anything I ever take. This is his promise for us. And when you see this promise, what do you do? Are you scared? Or do you run? Run faster to the Lord. Throw your wallet to him. Give him all your heart. Because he's a fount of all goodness. And he withholds nothing good from him who seeks him. God has given so much to us. Why would we ever withhold anything? Each of us in our own situation, we could never compare one with another. That's not the situation. What he just simply wants is our heart, our lives, so he can do something special, unique, and wonderful with each of our lives and family, and I believe our church. In this series, Looking Back and Moving Forward, in this third section, 12 to 26, we were called to refocus on God's way. He was bringing us into his presence that more of his blessing could go out to his people. God's laws restructure the way a people act, think, and live out their lives so they can live in conformity with their holy God. All the rules listed there were ultimately to point us to Christ as the way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. I give life and I give it abundantly. They're to lift the people of God up above all the nations. The people might see, wow, if God's love is that way, I want to be part of God's people. This is the design for God's people. As we go on and read in the Old Testament, we find that that did not happen. But it can happen now. And it can happen through our lives if we ourselves would turn and give all our pockets and open up our hearts to him. Every generation you see is tested. Will you be the generation that gives yourself fully to him? Will you be the generation that says, I will trust in the goodness of God. Whatever happens, I don't know, but I will trust him in the way that I follow and obey.
God is cultivating an intimate relationship with us. He does it through helping us be thankful. He does that by helping us remember what really happened in history, remind us of our roots, and touch us by his grace that's revealed in our lives. He is bringing kindness into our life, helping us to take part in sharing his kindness with others. We give. We give. And we be joyful. <laughs> I have the privilege of giving and reflecting God's goodness and love and care and provision and faithfulness by giving. You see, I'm reflecting God as I give. Evaluate your giving patterns and improve them through faith. And lastly, being committed. I delight in, and I delight in being delighted. In other words, I fully delight myself in God, and I fully revel in the thought that he delights in me. Nothing holds us back, you see. Every generation is tested. Can't blame history, and you can't depend on your children. Now is our generation. You have your life. What will you do with it? He's reaching into your pockets and into your hearts. Won't you open up? Don't believe the devil. He has those devilish lies that keep you doubting about God's goodness. But after all, who has given everything to us? In the creation, it was good. And in the cross, it was wonderfully good. Let's pray. Lord, we are so touched by your love for us. We don't deserve all your goodness. But having given us your goodness, you remind us, Lord, of our response. And sometimes, Lord, we find those doubts that have held back our giving, held back our own response of our heart to you. Sometimes we don't trust you about a job. We worry. Sometimes we don't trust you about a spouse or financial income or school or grades or how to restore a relationship or how to help someone that has a need. But Lord, we just want to confess that we have doubted how you're able to help Lord, it's the power is not in us. It's in you. It's in Jesus who lives in us. And so, Father, even now we ask for forgiveness and ask for restoration and ask for that fullness of love to touch us that we might be a people known for giving, a people that reflect your giving to Christ and in a multitude of ways. We bless you, O oh Father, and seek your blessing, not in finance or cushion, not in a job, not in a spouse, but in the way that you would bless us, however you choose. Our lives are yours. Live fully through them for your glory in Christ we pray. Amen. This concludes our message on Deuteronomy 26, reaching into our pockets and hearts. This has been produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net.